You're listening to the EFC Podcast. There is no debate that author Jordan Peterson is controversial. There is debate on how his work interacts with the Christian faith. Recently, I participated in a challenging conversation at a Toronto church about the book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. It was Timothy Eaton Memorial Church that invited Ephraim Radner, professor of historical theology at Wycliffe College, and myself, Karen Stiller, to explore a Christian response to the book as part of a thoughtful series they do called Being Christian. The question we explored was, is Jordan Peterson's work compatible with Christianity? It was a different experience for me, and a vulnerable one, quite frankly, to be on the receiving end of questions and not the delivery end. But Reverends Lorraine Diaz and Andrew Sterling, our hosts, were kind, and they did an excellent job of setting the stage for the discussion. You will hear their introduction in the podcast and then the conversation we had that followed. We hope you enjoy this. As we begin, let us begin uh, with a word of prayer. Would you please pray with me? God of all wisdom and compassion, none of us is the owner of truth. That belongs to you alone. We thank you that in Christian love and humility, we can gather here in conversation with one another. And we pray that in a glimmer of your truth would shine through to inspire us to deeper faith and a greater love for you, for one another, and for your world. All this we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So I want to begin this evening by naming the elephant in the room. (laughs) The Jordan Peterson is a somewhat controversial figure. For better or for worse, people are talking about him with their friends, with their families, on social media, at their places of work, in universities, in pubs, at sports clubs, everywhere. And rarely in neutral language. The New York Times called him the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now. Some of his fans and supporters talk about him and his work in language that borders on messianic. His critics are equally passionate. In the Globe and Mail, Margaret Wendy says that according to what she reads on Twitter, Jordan Peterson is among the most despicable men in the world, and that his nefarious aim is to seduce people into a hateful, reactionary cult. People call him flat-out dangerous. But if you've read this book, an ordinary self-help book, which Wendy says is neither outrageous nor entirely original. And if you're a Christian minister or theologian or lay person, what really strikes you when you read this book is Peterson's use of theology and biblical interpretation. A professor of psychology has filled the pages of his book with biblical references and spirited defenses of what he sees as the Judeo-Christian value system. So regardless of what you might think of Jordan Peterson's politics or his public persona, we believe that tonight is an opportunity for all of us to learn more about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, and the Christian faith. 
When repeatedly asked if he himself is a Christian, though, Peterson is coy. He says he doesn't go to church, but he considers himself religious. And he says he tries to live as though God exists. So as I read his theological arguments, I thought, I'm not really sure this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and while I, for one, certainly appreciate the appeal to Christian theology, I found some of his biblical interpretations to be outdated and at times uh, downright atrocious. So I thought, why not get a group of people together and talk about it and discuss it from a Christian perspective? And since even Christians are divided on what to think about this book, why not bring in a panel of Christian thinkers to talk about it from different perspectives? So that is what we are doing here this evening, and I'm pleased that you are, are here for this, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our panelists this evening, and they will each come up in turn and give a few opening remarks. So first, I'd like to introduce you to Karen Stiller, who is the senior editor of Faith Today magazine. She is an award-winning writer and editor. She's the author of numerous books, with one out just this year called Craft, Cost, and Call, How to Build a Life as a Christian Writer. She moderates the annual Religion and Society series at the University of Toronto, a debate series between leading atheists and theologians, including an event that featured Jordan Peterson. She also hosts a podcast for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, featuring interviews with Christian leaders and thinkers. And her spiritual memoir, The Minister's Wife, will be published in the spring of 2020. Please welcome, welcome Karen Stiller. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you to Reverend Andrew and Reverend Lorraine for the invitation to join in this conversation tonight and to Ephraim Radner to share, for sharing this time. I'm looking forward to our dialogue. Before I address the book, uh, 12 Rules for Life, directly, I'd like to talk briefly about my experience with Jordan Peterson, because I think it has some relevance. I'm guessing this group includes fans, and maybe some people who are not fans, of the controversial professor, author, and speaker. As Reverend Lorraine mentioned, in January 2018, I hosted a conversation on the meaning of life at the University of Toronto with Wycliffe College that included Jordan Peterson. At that time in my own life, I was doing my master's degree writing about spiritual things in a secular setting, and I was miraculously expanding my friend's circle out from its beloved but nerdy Christian writer base. I didn't want my new friends to think I was crazy or hyper-conservative, I guess, through my association with an event that included Jordan Peterson. After all, around that time, writer Tabitha Southey had called him the stupid man's smart person in McLean's magazine. <laughs> My good friend is the communications director at Wycliffe College, and like the coward I am, I asked her not to tag me on social media with the event. Then I began to do the work of preparing. Wycliffe sent me Peterson's first book, Maps of Meaning, which I dipped into and quickly realized that I could barely understand one complete sentence. So I turned to YouTube, which is where so many people have found the heart of Jordan 
Peterson. Probably two weeks out from the event, I told my friend to go ahead and tag me. I realized there was nothing to fear. The night of the talk, those of us on the stage were given all kinds of instructions for what to do when people stormed the stage in rage. No one did, except maybe in rapture after the event. Jordan Peterson was clearly a rock star to the audience, and somehow, in an event that also featured an apologist of the Christian faith, I believe that Peterson did more through what he said and how he said it to draw people toward meaning in their life than anyone else did that night. He preached hope, essentially. He really seemed to care. He got weepy, as he does, and he spoke profoundly about finding meaning. People listened and responded, as they do. The lineup to have his then brand new book, 12 Rules for Life to be Autographed, almost stretched out of Wycliffe. In that book, Peterson writes about what he says is the, quote, oldest story of humankind and something that religious people have always said. And that is that life is suffering, but you can transcend that. And you transcend it, according to Peterson, by embracing responsibility. Pick up your suffering, he says, which of course sounds an awful lot, but not exactly like pick up your cross. The 12 Rules of Life is Peterson's answer to the question, what do you do in the face of that suffering? He says things like, start with yourself. You can relieve your own suffering. How do you relieve the suffering of life? You'd be a better person. To have a meaningful life, everything you do matters, and you matter. His 12 Rules is the how-to guide to make that happen. Peterson has been called a gateway drug to Christian faith. I think that might be true. I've met people for whom that is true. He brings people to the great story, which I believe is a true story. So he helps people encounter what is true, and that can change people. There are far more painful ways to enter the faith. Peterson gives permission to believe. He agrees with people of faith that the world is hard, if you think that, that people are sinful, if you agree with that, and that there is evil loose in the world, and that if there is such a great darkness, then there is also great light. And I think you might believe that. Christians recognize that light as Christ. For right now, I'd like to share two critiques, probably there are lots more that I haven't thought of, that I think we can make as people of faith with the book. And one would be that Christianity, of course, is not ultimately about self-help, and that ultimately is what I think this book is about. It is because of God, and importantly, grace, that we can live the lives Peterson suggests we can, and it is for God that we live those lives. Peterson is the ultimate pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps person. He is a bit like my meanest grandmother was. I think that Christians believe that if we wear boots at all, it is through the grace of God. He puts our feet in the boots. He empowers us to pull up those straps. There is also how Peterson views the great biblical narrative and its stories and what it means for them to be true, which is different from how many of us might believe them to be true. So there's lots to talk about, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Our second panelist is Professor Ephraim Radner, who is a professor of historical theology 
at Wycliffe College at the Toronto School of Theology. He is uh, the author and editor of several books and also has one out this year, of A Profound Ignorance, Modern Pneumatology and its Anti-Modern Redemption. And uh, both of their books can be found on Amazon, just so you know. A former missionary in Burundi, Africa, and an Anglican priest, he has also served several congregations in the United States and has been active in the affairs of the Global Anglican Communion. And he continues to visit, consult, and teach in various parts of the world, including Asia and Africa. So please welcome Ephraim Rasmus. Thank you, and with Karen, my thanks for the invitation um, and for being able to be with all of you. I actually have no idea why I was asked to come. Unlike Karen, I, I've never met Jordan Peterson, and, and we, in fact, I've never paid much attention at all to Jordan Peterson. Um, from news bites that I read or heard, uh, I think I admired him somewhat as someone who is willing to stand up to the kind of academic language police that run around uh, universities and so on. And I thought that was a good thing to do. But I, I think I always considered him a bit of a man on the bank. Uh, and someone willing to let his ideas, whatever they really were, be, be hardened by the right wing of our era's cultural wars. In a way that, as with some other cultural iconoclasts, has not always proven helpful to the Commonwealth. On the other hand, I did know a lot of young people, was aware of a lot of young people, especially young men, who seemed to resonate with things he wrote and said. So, when the invitation to this panel came up, I readily accepted it in large measure because it seemed to me a responsible thing. Uh, that's good for Jordan Pieces. A responsible thing to try to educate myself about someone who's an undeniable social phenomenon and that had, after all, as Gary mentioned, camped out on the front steps of my own institution, as it were. Although I was away on sabbatical at the time, uh, Wycliffe College sponsored then, <clears throat> was there, as we just heard. So I thought I should know a little bit about what's going on on the threshold of where I work. And I need to say I'm very glad that I agreed to do this, and thus to read the book. Because I think The Twelve Rules is a remarkable book. Beyond the rhetorical posture, with its pithy self-help outline and titles, it is a wonderfully rich and challenging book. It is filled with, yes, as it sounds like we're going to talk about, Bible, but also philosophy, literature, history of science, popular culture, and of course the theory, experiment, and clinical psychological knowledge to Mr. Peterson's own special expertise. Some of this, as in any attempt to get at the whole of human life, is general. It's insufficiently studied and so on. And experts are going to quibble about what he says about so, so on and so forth. But that's not the point, it seems to me. Peterson's vast panorama of existential observation from across the millennia is quite responsibly, in my mind, and creatively, imaginatively, 
deployed in order to demonstrate and constructively elucidate something important but often forgotten in our day. That is, how our lives are complex, beautifully textured, fascinatingly challenging, and finally demanding of our deepest and most responsible learning and engagement. The fact that The Twelve Rules is a bestseller, I think, is a good thing, not a bad thing. Because most of the things uh, that most people today, especially young people today, read or are exposed to formatively, present life as just the opposite of what I just said, as life is simplistic or superficial or brutally dismissive or resistant to responsible effort and even to joy. It is not so much that our culture is shaping messages tell young people to give up, although many do, we need to admit, as that they tell them to take paths of least resistance, to limit critical thinking to the most self-regarding and sometimes self-destroying ranges of inquiry, to fear risk and cower from suffering and its constructive engagement. And all this, finally, leads to lives ever wrapped up in an overwhelming sense of personal defeat. The chaos, and that's the word he uses, that stands as Peterson's existential fortress to be stormed and dismantled, at least in hope, is something that ought to be stormed and dismantled. I could say much more about this, and I'm sure we will, but I need to stress here before we get into our discussion that Peterson's book, at least in my reading, is not religious at all. It is therapeutic in both its aim and its origin. Therapy, of course, may involve contexts of religion and an individual sense of meaning, but therapy does not presume any of these. And to be sure, a Christian can in fact learn a great deal from Peterson's book, and in a way that need not contradict or may even strengthen aspects of her or his faith. But the point about the book isn't faith. It isn't even truth, although Peterson talks a lot about the latter. Rather, the point of the book is what he says over and over again. It's coping. Coping with individual life. Therapy, of course, means healing. And coping is a rather limited form of healing. Coping does not presume resolving. Rather, it points to an ongoing struggle, but a perseverant one that has the strength within it to keep going. I, for one, think that's really important. Whether or not this is Christian or not, we'll talk about that in what ways it might be. But I think it's really important. And it's important enough and well enough written that I have sent it to my 26-year-old son, who is not a practicing Christian, but who I know needs to hear many of the things that Peterson has laid out, uh, and that I hope we'll talk about in a moment. Thank you. We'll move now into the conversational uh, time of our, of our evening, this evening needs little introduction, but I have to say that finding myself here with a microphone and the opportunity to talk 
about uh, Andrew Sterling is uh, something that can't be missed, so <laughs> I'm just kidding. Andrew, of course, is <laughs> senior minister here at, uh, at TEMC, uh, at, uh, at our church here. And most Sundays you can hear his thoughtful and inspirational sermons at our worship services at 9.15 and 11 o'clock or on our live stream of those services. Andrew is also the author of a number of theological books and articles, including the recently published article in Dog Eyes magazine about what animals can teach us about communicating love, which is uh, just a, a, a beautiful article, a beautiful uh, thing to, to talk about, and anyone who has pets can, knows what he's talking about. And so with that, I will turn the evening over to Andrew. Well, I'm not going to take up any of our time in terms of, of setting the scene too much for tonight, because in a sense, the questions that I pose will give you a sense of my own questioning and my own seeking uh, as I have read this book. But just a couple of things to sort of put it in perspective. You know, first of all, I mean, what really struck me is when we decided we were going to do this, and Laurie came to me quite a long time ago and said that the CD&E committee had decided that we would like to do something on Jordan Peterson. I took the book and I started to read it. And I was sitting having breakfast one morning on Bloor Street when the, uh, the server came over and said to me, are you reading Jordan Peterson's book? And I said, well, actually, yes, I'm getting ready, I think, to be a moderator on his work. And she sat down and she started to talk about the crises in her life and how this book had helped her. I subsequently had conversations with other people and made allusion to the fact that I was going to be doing this. And I was heavily criticized. Why are you giving this person a voice? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized as I responded, he already has a voice. The question is, how do I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, interpret it? And so I realized that both the antipathy towards him, but also the great affection for him, tells me this is worth discussing. And so the two individuals with whom I'm going to engage right now, and I want to be completely transparent here, I have known Karen for over 30 years when she was actually in my congregation at Woodlawn United Church in Dartmouth. And so I have a vested interest in having watched her flower and blossom. And I have also sat at the foot of Ephraim Radner by reading many of his theological tomes, which have influenced me in a number of ways. So they're two people that I admire greatly. Who better, I think? to engage in a conversation about someone like Jordan Peterson than Karen and Ephraim. So we're going to be looking at a number of different areas over the next little while. And we're going to be looking at the Bible and we're going to be looking at um, sin and the human predicament, that brokenness, about sorting ourselves out, about law and grace and Jesus and suffering, which is something you both alluded to. 
And we're going to try and do it from the point of view of people who, first of all, have a love and an affection for Jesus Christ, but also because we have a love and a concern and the well-being of people themselves. But because the Bible is the foundational document of, of our faith, it is the foundation of so much of what we do, Peterson himself actually addresses this in the book himself. And he puts alongside other scriptures like Vedic and Tao Ching and others, and he says, and I quote him, the Bible is, for better or worse, the foundational document of Western values and morality and conceptions of good and evil. He describes it as being thrown out of the deep from the collective human imagination, and he contrasts a little bit the Old Testament and the New, but he says that he leaves the door open, and it seems almost incomprehensible to someone unless they open their eyes, and then they can see that the God of the Old and the God of the New somehow come together. So my question, I guess, for both of you is, is his general understanding of the Bible, which of course influences his discussions about many things, therapeutic and otherwise, is his kind of conception of the Bible helpful? Is there anything that you found helpful in how he described it? Or is there something perhaps that we would like to say back to Jordan Peterson about his understanding of the Bible? Thoughts? Um, I, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, he uses the term psychologically true um, for the Bible. And so I, I found it really fascinating to read how he believes the Bible is true. And I think he may have mentioned um, at some point about a, how a novel is true. And I have found that I'm, I'm a big reader and a big novel reader. And I resonated right away with that. I thought, yeah, okay, now I understand what you mean by your understanding of what is true. Um, that it can be true without being literally true, of course, is what he means. Um, I thought uh, some of the Old Testament stories that he uses and you know dissects and talks about freely in the book, but also in his series on Bible teaching or well, Bible stories that he's done. It's interesting because there are stories that sometimes we as Christians avoid actually because they're you know like the Noah and the Ark story. Who wants to teach that in Sunday school? I've done it a million times, and I'm always trying to make it a nicer story than it actually is. And so in some ways, I've cloaked over that story sometimes in my Christian life. I've avoided it. And his way of looking at those stories as being true in a different way has actually brought them into discussion and uh, brought forward a kind of meaning that I've probably ignored sometimes because they're such uncomfortable stories. So, yeah, I, I, I find that that's one of his biggest challenge challenges is how he views the Bible, but he, I think it's very helpful that he's bringing the Bible forward and that uh, people are talking about it and reading about it because our culture has lost that. It may be this foundational, essential document of literature and so on, but a lot of people have never cracked it open <laughs> or understand the stories or remember the stories. So I think that's really helpful. Yeah, one of the things, there was way more Bible in this book than I certainly expected. 
Is this on? Yeah, it is. Um, and that surprised me, obviously, for somebody who I knew is not a self-professed Christian. He's not, I think we'll probably get back to sort of what his views of faith are, in fact. As far as I can tell, he's a young, he's a Jungian uh, psychologist um, who, and I'm not going to explain Jungianism because I don't necessarily understand it, but um, certainly the notion here is not divine revelation as it's understood in sort of traditional terms, not even that that's all that clear, but rather the Bible illuminates the deep structures of human experience. It illuminates them, but as, as you said, Andrew, so do other uh, religious um, uh, myths. Uh, and so he, he, he's happy to turn to Babylonian creation myths and, and others as well, just as Jung was, and just as the whole Jungian tradition has been, to find stories that actually reflect what's really true about what it means to be alive. And I do think he believes that the Bible uh, does that, if not better than anything else, at least in our culture, given the history of the West, most powerfully. Um, I mean, he has this whole thing about how in order to live well, we, we need an order. <laughs> we, we have to live within norms of some kind. That's how we make decisions. That's how we find meaning and so on. And I think from his perspective, the, the Bible is the most thickly integrated, profound set of normative um, uh, expressions of what human life is like within which we can productively find some kind of meaning. Um, and so he uses them in ways that I think are indeed very resonant with human experience. Um, and I don't mean that in a shallow way. I mean, in a deep way. One of the reasons that stories like Noah's Ark, or he does have this thing about the Old and New Testament, and which he, I read that portion, by the way, to a very well-known Old Testament, this is from Rule 4, very old, uh, very well-known Old Testament scholar, and he says he knows more about how the Testaments interact mm. than most biblical scholars seem to anymore, who are so willing to pick them all apart into different places and not actually see how they actually inform one another and need to. The notion of a mean Old Testament God and a nice, loving New Testament God, Peterson, and this is not this is not rocket science for a Christian, but in fact, it often seems that way in our era. These two testaments actually uh, go together. They're they're congruent. There are not two gods. There's one God, and they actually express what is real about the actual structures of life in the world. So he's able to do that. One of the places he does it is precisely because the Bible is able to talk about suffering and struggle in ways that in our culture and time, we have, despite the fact that everybody struggles just as much as before, tried to smooth out. Um, people die, people get sick, you fail all the time. Everybody fails not once, but over and over again. And the Bible tells us this. I mean, how can you have at the center of the whole meaning of the universe stories of of a great king who does nothing but lie and cheat and, and murder even while he's trying to be faithful. 
That's David, by the way. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and moving to somebody like, like, like Jesus in the end. Anyway, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think you get the point. I think there's something resonant about what he does with scripture that even though he doesn't view it as revelation, he understands it in some way more deeply than many Christians do. I, I, I think, I totally agree. I mean, the thing that surprised me most about this book on the positive side was that even uh, is really in, not so much in the area of theology, but in the area of anthropology in, in, its, in his conversation, in his talk about the nature of being human and how he drew on uh, biblical themes and the Garden of Eden in particular, and he draws this out. And he makes a number of comments, and these could kind of sort of make a lot of people shudder when, the, when they hear them. And if they're not used to the Christian faith, they shudder at the idea of it. And, and I'm thinking here, especially about how he looks at things like brokenness. Um, and he says, you know, um, we have this evil within us, uh, like the snake in the Garden of Eden. So again, he's used to the Bible, that inhabits each of our souls. So he talks about sort of the existence of, of sort of evil. And then he quotes that you know, famous line from Solzhenitsyn, you know, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the human heart. Um, we live in a day and age where I think for the most part, we seem to think, or we like to start with the assumption that somehow we're innocent um, and that we're essentially good um, and that the brokenness is somehow an anomaly um, or it is just something that needs to be fixed. Um, on the other hand, he seems to, to address the notion of sinfulness and brokenness as if it's an integral part of who and what we are. And talking to someone who was suffering from a very, very severe addiction, they said to me that when they read Jordan Peterson and he started talking about this brokenness, they said, finally, this is someone who actually describes how he's feeling. Um, and yet he's talking about it uh, almost apparently from a biblical point of view. Do you think he's overly negative about the human condition and the human person and the evil within us? Um, or do you think he's being very realistic and he's being very helpful? And, and does it really resonate with the, with the scriptures? Karen, what, what, what's your thoughts? I think that's one of the things he does most powerfully. And, and one of the things I applaud him the most for is just naming the evil within us. And even within the Christian church, I've, I've met lots of people who think it's about being nice and that we are generally good. And, and that blocks us from the gospel, actually, in a very real way. I think like he, he talks about that we could all be the guard at Auschwitz and it's wonderful to think that we wouldn't be, that we would be the person who lets uh, the Jewish family hide in our basement. But statistically speaking, we probably wouldn't have been. And that's really like horrifying to read and think and contemplate. But I think, you know, as, as Christians that, that I think that's what we kind of believe <laughs> and that it, you know, it's Jesus who saves us from our sins, and then we can begin our new life, uh, our new redeemed life. So his solution to that may be different from us, our, our solution <coughs> theologically, but I think it's really important that he names that. And 
I was thinking a, a few weeks ago, my husband, who's a priest, preached a sermon that made me uncomfortable. And I mean, he's made me uncomfortable lots of times, but it was just so like hard hitting and, you know, kind of negative, but then, you know, hopeful at the end. And a young lawyer from our congregation, you know, probably in his very early 30s, if that, came up to him later and said, that's that's right. That's what young people want to hear. You know, they want to hear it like it is. And then know there's a path forward. So I, I think he's not too negative. I mean, it's a big, heavy book to read in a way. Like, there is a lot of, you know, negative stuff in it, for sure. But that is what is resonating, saying that like it is. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I mean, one of his great, one of the great virtues and, and goals and aims that come up, I mean, he's got one rule devoted to it, but it comes up in many, is honesty. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things he feels has been stripped from many younger people. Now remember, he, a lot of what he's doing here, as far as I can tell, I don't know the man, is that he's working out of his clinical experience with people. This is not an abstract set of questions that he's dealing with. He's trying to talk out of having lived with, talked to, worked with, I don't know, hundreds of people who are struggling in their life. So um, you've got to face into the reality of what your life is if you're going to, and this is the therapeutic part of it, if you're going to overcome it or get through it or cope with it, you have to at least admit it for what it is. And he's quite certain that many younger people especially have trouble doing that because they have been told and taught not to be honest about both themselves and their world. So, I mean, I, I gather Deutsch, uh, the, the, the psychiatrist or scientist who wrote the forward to this, says, you know, and, 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 and uh, Peterson alludes to this, as you just said, that one of the things that has um, driven his questioning for a long time is the reality of the gulag, of communism, mm. and so on, and walking into his office and it's covered with pictures of, of uh, from the Soviet, old Soviet Union and so on. So this question of how do, how do human beings do what they do and how do we engage that has obviously haunted him uh, in the big picture, but I think also in the little picture, individuals, individuals, how do we, how do, how do we get this way? And so I think he, the honesty is important. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, one of the things that, that when Peterson was talking about this honesty, um, but he's also talking about sort of the uh, naming, in a sense, the brokenness that is there. Um, it, it sparked an image in my mind of something that, that I experienced when I was in my early 20s, um, when I saw a, a South African police officer shoot a child. And um, after I had witnessed that um, in, in a riot situation, um, I must admit, um, I, my sort of um, aren't we all really essentially great idea came crashing down around me. And it sort of shook me to my core. And only later, when I started to actually work through it, when I started to read another influence on him, which was Viktor Frankl, um, or Solzhenitsyn, 
um, or those who had faced the gulag, as you said, only when they'd faced, confronted, you know, sort of the very presence of evil and brokenness and the human capacity to do bad things. Um, I thought Peterson was speaking truth. Um, where I, I thought he went into rather an unusual area is in his talk about sin. And this I want to sort of touch on for a moment. Because he talks about sin not only being uh, something that we do, the sins of commission, but the sins of omission, the, the good that we don't do, um, and the things that we leave undone. We like to point fingers at people who have sinned, and it's easy to do that. We can all make judgments about one another very easily. But it's another thing to talk about sins of, of omission, of the good that we don't do, and that also requires some honesty. Do either of you sort of have any thoughts on that? Because I think it's something that, you know, it's not talked about a lot, um, of the sins of, of omission, of not doing the right and the just and the good. Well, I think part of his press on responsibility aims at that. That is to say that it's not just that we have to make good on, on, on the mistakes we've made, but we are actually called to something outside of where we are. I mean, omission is what we haven't done, <laughs> literally. And so he has, he has this notion of responsibility, but it's tied to this issue of having an aim of something beyond yourself. So part of dealing with your, your failed innards uh, of omission in this sense that are not yet engaged is that you have to know where you're going and you have to also take charge of that. And we're gonna get into this place of sort of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which also involves a question of sin. Mm. Is it possible actually to be utterly responsible? Mm. I mean, that's a... Mm. He would want that to be the case in the face of these horrors, and in the case uh, as well as small uh, challenges. But can we actually do what we're meant to do? And that includes not doing things we do as well as doing things mm. that we haven't done. And um, he certainly sees um, being using the sense, I hope non-majority, fulfilling your human life as getting out of that undone stuff, of doing what you, do, what you haven't been able to do uh, with over and against all kinds of obstacles. Um, but he doesn't deal so much with the fact of people and the realities where you cannot actually break free from that. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where sin comes. I mean, the Christian view of sin is that you cannot fix sin on your own. Right. You right. cannot do that. No. You no. cannot love where you have no love. You cannot make good what has been made bad or what simply is not right. You can do some, but uh, I, and I think that's where one of the places veers off in mm -hmm. the Christian but I, I should yeah. let you respond. No, no, I, I think that's right. Um, I think this uh, idea of the sins of omission and, and encouraging people to do what is right and do what is responsible is when he is the most kind, actually, to the people who, you know, follow him. Um, 
I don't know if you've listened to some of his podcasts or he, he does uh, fairly, well, every few months he does a Q&A time and often the questions are like, I, I can't do what I want to do. <laughs> and he's like, just get out of bed at the same time every morning. Just start there. And then eat a good breakfast. Because a lot of things have to do with not eating a good breakfast. Yes. And, you know, and then, you know, get back to me in a few months and we'll, go, we'll talk again. You know, he's just, that to me is where he is giving, you know, the most hope, in fact, that you can do what is right if you start, you know, by putting your shoulders back or whatever it is he wants us to do. But yeah, I, I, I find him the most kind there. But do you find that adequate? Yeah, I fundamentally no. And I, I think that's exactly right. Like what does enable us to do what is right? I, I agree. I agree. And to what end? I think those are the questions a Christian can you know, rightly ask and think about. The question of honesty that we were talking about earlier, I that struck a chord in me in terms of the church. And this is kind of a old criticism of the church, and I know that, but I have found it to be true that sometimes we're afraid to be really honest in the church or in our faith life. Or, and I've, I've seen that over the years in, to be honest, women's Bible studies that I've been a part of where um, as the minister's wife, I. I used to really like starting women's Bible studies in the churches where my husband served because it was a way for me to be involved and study the Bible, actually. <laughs> so it was all about me. Um, but I would be honest about what I didn't get. And more than once, I would say, I don't understand that passage. Or I, I, that really strikes me as weird or unfair or, gosh, you know, what's happening here? And as soon as I did that, it kind of opened up, you know, for some reason people thought, well, if the minister's wife can, doesn't get it, then it's okay if I don't get it because of some misguided idea they have about clergy, I think fundamentally, but still I realized, oh, there's such power in not pretending. And I've also interviewed, you know, lots of Christian leaders over the years in my work. And, you know, there's a lot of things they say, but you know, I'll ask a question, they give an answer, but don't say that, you know, but don't print that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this, but don't print that. And it's never anything terrible. It may be their thoughts on contemporary praise music or something. Um, <laughs> but um, they, you know, they, silence they're, that they're afraid of how people will respond. So I, I just, yeah, that we also need to hear, be honest, say what is true. And be precise, and you know, mean what you say, say what you mean. It's we're I, not immune. From I that. think one of the, the most powerful things he said um, was that failure to tell the truth weakens us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know that that inability sometimes to to have that self knowledge and the knowledge of self um, to not tell the truth um, actually weakens who we are and affects us stops us from standing up straight mm-hmm. um, and having kind of that, that posture. Um, he, but he sometimes seems to dig and presses a nerve just a little too deep in here. And I'm wondering what you two think of this. Um, he says um, that deceitful, inauthentic existence 
is the precursor to social totalitarianism. And then he says that we need to, and I quote him, and it's a famous line of his, fix ourselves before we fix the world. And I've had young people really resist this and say, well, at what point do I ever get to the point where I have fixed myself? Um, in other words, is this really within my power to do? And do I not also try and help fix the world? Do I not um, have an obligation to my neighbor? Don't I have uh, the right to do that? Um, and at what point do I get to the point where I fix myself so I can then fix the world? Um, is, that, is he asking too much of us? And is he in so doing kind of holding us back at times? Because maybe, and I posit this, maybe at times, in a sense, we find out who we are when in fact we're seeking to transform and to change the world around us because we want it to be a better place. What do yeah. you think? I think that, I think no. <laughs> I think that he would agree that in the fixing of the world, you are fixing yourself because that comes up pretty quickly out of get out of bed and have breakfast is find something to do that makes the world a better place. So I, I feel like that shift into responsibility comes very early in the fixing of yourself. Mm -hmm. I think, if I've understood him correctly. Yeah, and, and that's right. Because, and this is something that hasn't come up yet, but I think is central to the whole book, positively. Even though it's a self-help book in a kind of genre, and it is in a certain way, it's all about the self in relation to other people. Uh, to me, that's one of the best things he does, is he says that, to be a whole individual, if you will, or to be growing and so on, is to be in relationship with other people and to understand your responsibilities there. Um, as I said earlier, this, this is a very thick view of what a human person is. This is not, an, it can come off as we talk about it, as very individualistic. It's all about fixing me and so on. Mm -hmm. But for Peterson, the individual exists with others. That's what it means to be a person is to, have responsibility to other people, to your friends, to your parents, to your children, to etc. There is no sole individual who can fix him or herself solely by looking at him or herself. To fix oneself is to care for others and for the relationships one has with them. Which is why, to your earlier question, I think, you know, why does why does sort of glossing over this stuff, inauthentic existence, or lead to social totalitarianism? It's because people who are, we'll use, we'll use the term sinful in this way, dishonest, inauthentic, cannot see other people with whom they are in relation. And so fixing other people is not about fixing real people. It's about theories. It's about uh, manipulations of, of systems and so on. To fix yourself is to understand who another person is that you're with, truly, and to have compassion on them and to see their own challenges and brokenness and so on. And um, I do think that eventually, as you say, very early on, that means that to be a, a responsible self is to be a self responsible for others and in relationship to others. 
it's interesting. I mean, I think that you have given a view of him that I think has actually got lost a little bit in in the in the in the public discourse about it. So I think you you've brought up actually a very fascinating point. Um, there is this sense in which he talks about Jesus, um, and he has sort of um, an area where he he covers off what he thinks essentially what the Christian tradition is. So I'd like to just shift a little bit now to, 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 to that and to the person and the work of Christ. Then I want to come back to this when we talk about suffering and grace, which is sort of where I'd like to sort of leave us for a while. But this is what he wrote. And for those of you who had the book, it's on page 223. In the Christian tradition, Christ is identified with the Logos. The Logos is the word of God. The word transformed chaos into order at the beginning of time, one of his other big themes, right? In his human form, Christ sacrificed himself voluntarily to the truth, to the good, to God. In consequence, he died and was reborn. The word that produces order from chaos sacrifices everything, even itself, to God. That single sentence, wise beyond comprehension, sums up Christianity. Every bit of learning is a little death, he writes. So I read this as someone who is a fairly orthodox Christian, and, um, and I resonate with some of the themes that, that he brings out, and, and I find them quite interesting. Death and rebirth, goodness, God, and so on. Is the danger, though, in looking at Christ this way, for a non-believer to read this? Now, I, I want to put ourselves not in a position of someone who's been brought up in the Christian faith or read the Bible, but someone who comes in and they read this. Is this sort of, is this helpful? Is it an introduction? For them to the person of Jesus, um, and and if if it isn't helpful, what is it that we would like Jordan Peterson to say in addition to it? Well, there's a a droopy young man that I know uh, to whom I gave this book before I read it, which I never learned that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I give books before I read them, which is not a good thing to do sometimes. He's a young Christian man. And then when I read the book, I thought, oh, oh, oh you know, because passages like that, I don't think align well with how we understand what happened on the cross and atonement, for example. Um, so I think that um, I felt like for him, maybe it wouldn't be helpful. Um, but I almost feel like the proof is in the pudding a little bit in that it has been helpful to so many young people who, who say that they have come to a faith through things like that, through encountering the person of Christ. And, you know, there are some of those people in our church and I'm part of a kind of a weird Facebook group of, um, you know, Christians interacting with Jordan Peterson stuff that sometimes I, I don't have a clue what they're talking about, I will say. Uh, but they are clearly have been led to some place of faith 
through Peterson talking about the Bible and talking about Jesus. So now if we sat down and asked them to describe what happened on the cross, could they answer that properly? Maybe not yet, but I guess I'm hoping that if people walk through the front door, they will sit in the pew eventually and get some things straightened out maybe. I'm sure you have a much better answer. And, and as you said, it, and as, as Ephraim said, it's not a book about theology. Yeah. It's a book about therapy. And so I get that. But yeah. nevertheless, from our point of view, as Christians talking about this, mm -hmm. I think this is kind of a key area. Yeah. Ephraim. So I, the context is also important right? from what you read. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, what, what he says there, he's describing the Christian story. and But it comes after talking about ancient Egyptian story, Osiris, Seth, Horus, and so on. Uh, he goes to the underworld, he comes, he helps his father. These are, these are stories, these are paradigms of embracing death for something good. Right. And then he follows the story of Christ with a, you know, a clinical story. Uh, anecdote of a man who, you know, his life falls apart and in a way he dies and then he returns from the depths and, uh, um, a wiser, happier man. He, he lost 40 pounds. He ran a marathon, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He chose rebirth over descent to hell. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but the, the, the point is he's, he's embedded the story of Christ on the cross into this yes. paradigm, yes. uh, that's common of accepting suffering and death for something good and good comes out of it. And, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but that's not the Christian message. The Christian, at least as I understand, the gospel is not that the whole world is structured uh, according to a paradigm of death and rebirth. Um, it's that God did something. Um, and God did something that, of course, touches the whole world, but not in a way that we're all the same thing. We are not all living out a, 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 a kind of uh, what do you want to call it, a, a, a cinematic loop that keeps running of death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth. And you can take this in the direction of some of the most sentimental, um, you know, Easter sermons. You know, the whole oh, look at the, 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 the cocoon and the caterpillar and the Christ cell and something dies and something is born again. And isn't that just the way of the world and so on? That's right. Now, he doesn't do that. He's doing mm. more than that. Mm. I just want to say that he is not telling the Christian gospel. He is describing the Christian story as something that fits a right. larger paradigm that lots of things can fit into, and he wants them to fit into. It, it, it's interesting because, I mean, to use sort of a sporting metaphor, and everyone knows Manchester Timothy, United. Uh, Manchester United, <laughs> yeah, no. Who will rise from the dead. Uh, but, um, but, uh, but in a sermon last year, I, I don't know, accidentally slipped into the Tiger Woods at the Masters story and um, found myself digging a great big hole that I had to then get out of because... I had sort of posited this sort of death and rebirth um, of a golfer now winning the Masters after years of being flattened down. And, and then last week I had a conversation about Colin Kaepernick and him actually bearing the stripes of his convictions and not playing for the San Francisco 49ers. And we had this whole life and death um, motif, which you're talking about. And it, that, that can resonate with people. They can, they can go, I can understand that. 
I can get my mind around that. Um, and, you know, someone who was down, who was now up, and Christ was down, and he was then up, and Christ is the archetype of all Not these dead. good people, and just like Tiger. And, um, and you know, you go, no, um, no, he died, and he was raised from the dead. Um, and yet, you know, people read this, and they get caught up in that life and death paradigm. Which I guess brings me to the really big point. Um, and notwithstanding the way Laurie's described the elephant in the room, for me as a theologian, the elephant in the room is that can we really do what Jordan Peterson wants us to do if we do not have the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do it? Can we, on our own, achieve what he likes for us to be able to stand upright and live that good and productive life? Um, and I don't mean this just in absolute terms, because I think that there are many practical things here that help us do concrete things daily that make our lives better. But fundamentally, do we not need both grace, forgiveness, and the power of the Spirit to be able to live what, in essence, are the 12 rules of life. Your thoughts? I find that confusing because I know there are lots of good people living good, responsible lives who don't believe what we do. So I've always found that confusing, to be honest. Um, I find it illuminating how he uh, talks about belief in God because that, when I hear him talking and I may be moving outside of the book here a little bit, but he has this who who would dare to say they believed in God answer when people ask him, you know, tell us, do you believe in God? Who would dare say they do? Because if you say you do, then so much is required of you. Mm. And then I that's when I think, wow, you really don't get it, you know, in terms of grace and forgiveness and being set free and you know, living a life in response uh, to our God who loves us. Um, so I, I know that we understand our redeemed lives very differently from what he does. So I know the answer to your question is, uh, no, of course you can't do it without Christ. But I, I find that I would love for you to explain that <laughs> theologically because I know that, you know, that book, that book is changing people's lives. Mm. Like if, when you go on YouTube and you read the comments, you know, people are saying, you saved my life. Thank you. You saved my life. You know, I, it's astonishing. So I don't know. So I, I would say two things. One is, one is that it doesn't matter. He's after something. He is after, as I said, therapeutic efficacy. He's a pragmatist, I think. He's a Jungian pragmatist. And by pragmatist, I mean you measure things by whether they work. And he has said that about faith. He, he, he's described faith in terms of that which works, quite literally. And that's why he doesn't want to say, I believe, as you said, he's been asked that. Um, what is belief? Belief is what works what works in his case for whatever these goals are. Um, so 
that's what he's measuring things by. And I, then the question is, is Christianity a pragmatic religion? I mean, is that its message? And part of what I would say to your question, Andrew, is um, a lot of faithful Christians' lives, there doesn't achieve any of this. That's not, the proof is not in that pudding. Um, if, if in fact, the Christian faith depends on whether or not we live productive, responsible lives, the jury is at the very best still out, and at the worst has been denied over and over again by people who claim Christian faith. So, is there such a thing as a non-pragmatic Christian faith? And I would have to say yes, but what does that include? I mean, it's not that, it's not, I mean, Jesus says, you know, you will know them by their fruit, but what is the fruit that, that he has in mind? And I'm not, some of it, some of it might have some, might be the same as what Peterson's talking about. I mean, having a goal, sacrificing, being, re, being responsible towards others, those are real Christian fruits. Mm -hmm. Um, and can you do it with or without grace? I, I don't. I, I don't know what to say about that, one way or the other. Mm. The, the certainly grace is. I assume we'll talk about that. But there's other Christian fruit too that we will talk that, that we will talk about. Praise of God. Mm. I did a little sort of little list of word, things that just don't appear in this book. Mm -hmm. Praise is one. Mm -hmm. Adoration. Mm. Thanks is there sometimes, but not a lot. Um, forgiveness is not there um, much at all. Um, that is to say, letting your enemy walk all over you, giving away all you have for Jesus. Now, he does talk about sacrifice, but not in those terms. Um, holiness. These are things that we would... Uh, that we would claim are part of the Christian life and that whatever it means to have them are the fruit of the Christian life and of the spirit. I'm not sure that they fit with the pragmatic understanding of what works to sort of get through life. Maybe they help us get, praise helps us get through life. I don't know. And I, I you see my point. I, oh, yeah. I, I totally get your point. And I, and I think at times... We, um, and, and this again kept coming bouncing off the page at me really, is the sense in which there are those who sort of try and, and, and almost turn the Christian gospel into nothing more than a spiritualized self-help program. And that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will have a fulfilling life and Christ gives you the power to do it so you have the power and the efficacy of, of, of Christ there to, to help you do it. But that that seems to, you know, almost to be the end of it and the test of it. And that we sort of bring and reduce the Christian faith to whether or not it actually makes our lives better, richer, whatever, um, whatever term you want to use. But I'm like you. What I found missing in this, and even when he was talking about suffering, and, and this for me, um, he, 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 he says suffering is real and the artful infliction of suffering on another for its own sake is wrong. And I go, oh, I'm so glad he said that. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that he, he wrote that. Um, but, you know, even that to me did not seem to be kind of an advance on, you know, um, what, 
how Christ would have us see the other in terms of the laying down of one's life for others. So it's not just the absence of hurting someone, but that notion of the sacrifice of the self um, for, for others. I saw that as, as not necessarily missing, but not articulated. But I go back to the praise, the adoration, I mean, the glory, all of those things. But Karen, I mean, you deal with a lot of young people. You deal with people who, who read Faith Today and so on. Um, I'm interested in just sort of ending a little bit on the notion of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because I must admit, there are times when I read this book that I, I, I felt it was like a guilt-inducing book. Um, and I think some people feel that. They go, oh, crikey, you know, I didn't do that. No, oh, dear, I'm, I'm you know. Um, and, um, and yet, correct in terms of things that we should and should not do. As he said, Jesus talks about and moves from the shout-nots to the shouts and, and so on. But what about forgiveness? And where does that come in? And if you were to write, and I ask you both this, um, a, th- a 13th, not rule, or, but a 13th chapter, what would, what would you add to this to sort of improve it? Well, that's interesting. You, I mean, you've—I may have said gratitude before because that struck me as something that was missing, and partly because there's so much science behind gratitude as an action that you know makes us healthier, and a generosity too would be another uh, area of virtue where there's science uh, to support it. Whereas. Uh, forgiveness, there probably is science, but I, I would say less so. I think there's also a school of thought that, you know, you don't need to forgive the person who abused you or whatever, that you keep, you know, going or whatever. Um, I think forgiveness is probably a key big thing. Uh, the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness we share. Mm. Uh, he is writing a follow-up. People probably know that if they follow him, like another set of rules, uh, one of which is gratitude, I understand. So I thought that was kind of interesting mm. and mm. good to hear. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I think, I think I would have said gratitude, but the forgiveness piece, I don't think I it really struck me before this evening, actually. And I, I think that is like key and if you could unlock the secret on how to forgive people (laughs) over and over again of course we know how we're supposed to do that but it's hard work it's Mm. hard work to forgive and it's an ongoing lifelong process of forgiving so yeah i think that's really important i don't think we we want another rule Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and the rules are there again because they're meant to achieve something and I think what's missing is the fact that, not that there aren't things to achieve, but what's missing is a person, and that is the living God, um, who, of course, gives us laws and statutes and commandments, but given from God, there's something completely different than rules for life. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, there are lots of things that could fill it out, but you could fill out everything you wanted with more and more rules to make it look more and more like traditional Christianity. But if you don't have a living God who is our creator and our redeemer, 
then it's not, it is something else. It's, it's a way to get through from point A to point B. That's not what faith is. That's not what a human life is. Human life already is point A, birth, and point B, death. That's already a given. We get from one place to the other. And what do we fill it up with? Well, God gives us himself. That's what we fill our lives up with. And we don't do it. And so I, I think that this, it's just a, these are operating at very different levels. And I don't think it's possible to turn this. And see, this is not a criticism of the book. That's mm -hmm. not what it is. Mm -hmm. And he is not, as much as he's not a theologian, he doesn't believe that, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not what this is serving. This is not serving as a window to God, yeah. which is part of what we do in our lives uh, as, as Christians. Well, this has been fascinating, folks. And um, I... Um, and, and thank you both for your, your candor and, and your clear a love for the book, but also your honesty. Um, we're going to give everyone an opportunity to ask a question in, in a written form, and Laurie will be collecting those during um, our break. Um, but uh, I just uh, sort of wanted to um, conclude by sort of saying this as an editorial piece at the end. Um, and that is that, that when I read this book, um, I found it, you know, profoundly interesting. Um, there were times that the book bored me and there were other times when I thought it was deeply insightful and, and, and helpful. But I think Ephraim, you have actually summed it up so eloquently, I don't need to. Um, it, it, this is a book that stands on its own merits, it's helpful on its own merits. But I think for those of us who are confessionally Christian, uh, to then be able to talk about that living God in the light of this book opens up a door and an avenue which I think we owe Jordan Peterson credit for. Um, and for that, um, I think this has been a very, very worthwhile exercise. So let's take a break. Um, let's take about 15 or so minutes and reconvene in here. Please, uh, will you, if you've got a question, put it in the box and Laurie will then hand it to me and then we will again talk about that. But most of all, enjoy some fellowship and some time in the atrium. Thanks everybody. Uh, you've had hopefully a little time of fellowship and conversation and um, nice to see so many of you staying around for the actual sort of Q&A that you've, uh, you've authored. And now we can't, of course, deal with all the questions here, um, but there are some, um, well, they're all good, but there are some that perhaps have not been touched on specifically in, in what we've done. Um, so these are, again, for our guests. And, um, and, um, and this one um, puts something very practical before us. Do you think, that Jordan Peterson is compelled to be coy about his belief in Christianity in order to stay relevant in the conversations in a politically correct world that would immediately dismiss him as a theologian who has drunk the Kool-Aid and therefore can now be dismissed. And who asked that? That's a dandy. What do you think, guys? You want some sparks? We're going to get sparks now, right? I, I, I think no. 
I don't think he's being coy. I think he's being really honest. And I don't think he cares at all about political correctness. I think he's shown that. Um, so you may know the person that he said this to. I can't remember the name. But in some interview, he said he was going to commit or dedicate three years to con contemplating the physical resurrection of Jesus. And this was like a couple of years ago. I, I haven't like put it on my calendar or anything. Um, so he is, and I, you know, I, I, I believed him. I, he is giving it thought. He's paying attention, obviously, to matters of religion and faith. But I, I, don't, I don't think he's being coy. No, I don't. I, I, I have no idea. But it, one could ask the question, what if he announced tomorrow that he was being baptized a Roman Catholic in the Roman Catholic Church. What would that do? Or, or something else, I mean, I don't know. I just pick that, become a Pentecost. What would that do to his following stature profile? It would change it, I'm pretty sure. Now, that doesn't mean that he's avoiding it so that he can keep his following and so on. But he is definitely, you said he's, he's he, Political correctness is something he's against. I agree, and I've admired some of that. On the other hand, in, in our particular culture wars, which we are definitely still in, there's money to be made, both literally and figuratively, in being part of a particular side of the battle and so on and so forth. And I don't think for a moment Jordan Peterson is unaware about of that. Um, I'm not suggesting that he's craven and corrupt and whatever, but there's no question that he's orchestrated a whole lot of this. He wouldn't have written this book the way he did in terms of its format. The 12 rules and the nice, funny little things about, you know, don't bug your kids when they're skateboarding and so on. These are all things that he, these are rhetorical things that he knows can and the publishers perhaps have uh, figured he's put all these his videos and so on. So he's a he's a master at self publicity. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, that, and that's and and whether that goes anywhere with his faith, I doubt that. I think he's a person of integrity, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, he would, if he truly accepted aspects of traditional Christianity, be open about it and mm -hmm. say it. But I don't doubt for a moment he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that, that, it's fair. It, it's very interesting that um, when I first saw the cover of this book, it was, believe it or not, in Trafalgar Square at Waterstone's bookstore. And it was out front for everyone to see. It was the, the first book you saw when you went in. And this leads to a question, actually, that, that somebody else has written, and, and another question. And the reason I say it leads into it, because um, the, the clerk who was sort of behind the desk um, said um, to me when I was picking it up with the thought of buying it, because it was cheaper in pounds than dollars, um, she said, uh, do you really, really, really think... Um, that women would read this book, and I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm reading this myself. Then somebody here has asked this question, so here we go. 
Why does Peterson relate chaos to women on page 35? Yeah, I, I, that's a really good question. Um, and I wish I had, uh, I wish I could remember exactly why I, I did look into that. And of course it's escaped me. Um, he does say that, um, order, which he would connect with the male gone too far becomes totalitarianism, which he despises, of course. So order also has a negative element to him at some point. So we think of chaos as a negative immediately. Um, and of course the title of the book, I think there's a couple of different kinds of chaos that he's referring to, which is important to know. Um, that's the whole of my answer. I would need to go back and read that again. And yeah, you answer I'll look at my chart. Yeah, you look at your chance. Um, Again, Mr. Wright, he uses chaos in more than one way. And when he does the sort of chaos female thing, he's working in a pretty well-established Jungian framework of archetypes. Um, he didn't make this one up. Um, there's positive, there's negative, and so on. But, okay, but let's assume that's the case, and the balance, and everybody has some of this in them, and you know, you gotta, you gotta engage it properly, creatively, and so on. Um, but there are other things there in the book. Uh, I, I made a note that Rule 11, where some do not bother children or skateboarding <coughs> um, about sort of learning how to be tough. Mm -hmm. And that's especially a male thing. So, I mean, I can read, you know, uh, yeah. uh, one place that I took out of it. Um, he's talking about boys and men, you know. Mm -hmm. Men enforce a code of behavior on each other working together. They, this is good. They, men have got to learn how. That's why you've got to help your boys mess up, uh, not, not save them from getting messed up, but, but allow them to fail and to push themselves and to get in the rough and tumble of male, because that's the world they're going to live with. Then he goes on, you know, and he said, I'm quoting from him, I forget which page this is. That's under Rule 11. If they're healthy, women don't want boys, they want men. They want someone to contend with, someone to grapple with. If they're tough, they want someone tougher. If they're smart, they want someone smarter. They desire, this is women, they desire someone who brings to the table something they can't already provide. This often makes it hard for tough, smart, attractive women to find mates. There just aren't that many men who can outclass them enough to be considered desirable. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, he gets into finally, and this is stuff that some people have responded to mm. both very positively, uh, because as, as men who feel sort of pushed out, they, 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 they respond, here's somebody who's got her back, uh, and also very negatively. And I guess sort of the notion of what a, what a woman, you know, there have been movies about this, what a woman wants, or what a man wants, and what a man needs. We can talk about that, but when he gets to this place, it's now said with a kind of certainty and, and sort of this is the way it is right. for men and women that I think, I think even he would probably, uh, based on his own clinical experience, want to pull back from a bit. Uh, uh, so what do I think of that? I, I, I don't think this is a direction where he shines. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of cultural stuff here. We can argue about that. Mm. And Christians are arguing about right now, about gender and male-female stuff in ways that are extraordinarily uh, profound, powerful, divisive, conflictual, uh, because they're important. So he, he's engaging some important. But when he says things like that, this is what women want. They don't want boys. They want men. Men can't be, you know, this whole thing about dependence and independence. Men, women don't want dependent men. And so I mean, these are like, these are like old jokes from movies in a way. And we can, we can try to engage this seriously, but I don't think he does it here, mm. to be, be quite honest. And I think these are places where it doesn't sound quite right. Mm. Uh, anyway, that. I also have that, that very paragraph highlighted here. Um, and, I found it. I found it really challenging. Like when I read it, I thought, "Oh, oh, you know, you're going to get in big trouble." Um, and then, and yet, and yet, I think there is a grain of truth there. Um, and I have, I have friends and acquaintances who I've met over the years who wished their husbands would stop being boys and would man up. Like, I, I wish that wasn't a thing. And I feel uncomfortable even saying that. Mm. But it is a thing. And, and I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's, I mean, the, the side of sort of taking responsibility for yourself yeah. in, a, in, in a time in your, of your life, in a culture, in a place where you've sort of let it all go because you feel utterly defeated. I think that's important. I'm not sure, however, yeah. that the best way to put that, I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure how constructive it is, is to organize it so clearly right. and with such certainty under, you know, my daughter, I can say the same things to her. Oh, yeah. Take I, you I know, agree. this sort of stuff Absolutely. is not. Yeah, for I, I, sure. I mean, I think it, that's where he is talking to his alienated, audience like he does believe that young men have been given the short end of the stick in our current cultural climate he does believe that and you know one commentator i read uh thinking about tonight talked about that is the group who does not come to church you know that every church is trying to figure out how do we get young men or you know men at all into church and so he is Talking to everyone, but that is his special audience. There well, is no somebody told that. me this is like, in a very different way, this is like Malcolm X for disenfranchised white yeah. middle-class youth. What, and, yeah. uh, you know, take some responsibility. Don't wait for somebody else to fix your problem. Uh, it's not going to happen. Don't be the victim. <laughs> um and you can do this. See, the other thing is, isn't you should do this. He does say that. But also you can do this and it yeah. will make a difference. And I think if he's stuck there, that would that would be, in one sense, probably less alienating to some readers yeah. um, who, who get this. I, I need to say that this is a very small part of this book. Mm -hmm. You, This is at the very end of the book. Much of the book, all the things people have gotten all upset about with Jordan Peterson, whether he's right wing or the, there's nothing about that in, in the book. No. And I think one should be careful about sort of picking, I, which I just did, picking something out and then waving it as if it, 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 it characterizes a whole uh, attitude and philosophy, because that's not what this book is about. No, I, I, you know, and I admire your honesty in that. 
I, you know, one of the the critics um, of this book um, in within my cadre of 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 thinkers has said that that um, and this is germane to this issue is that that, that Peterson is, it reaches those perhaps who themselves feel disempowered and weak, but does not fully appreciate in saying some of these things, how it can also animate those who are already in positions of power and strength. Mm, yeah. So while it addresses the, 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 the weakness, um, what it doesn't do is deal with the strength. And I love something Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you know, I'm not actually worried about myself um, when um, I'm, I'm at my weakest. I am more concerned about myself when I'm at my strongest. And so depending on who reads this book, whether they are reading it from a point of weakness that helps them stand up and, and, and as you said the phrase, you know, sort of man up and, 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 and take responsibility, that lifts up those who are meager and, and, and looking down on themselves. But for those who are in positions of power and authority, it's a license to exercise that power. Well, is that unfair? Yeah, I think that's unfair. Um, <laughs> I think that person needs to read chapter nine, assume the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Um, because I, I feel like if somebody read the book, like honestly and fully that, it would be very hard to escape chapters like the listening chapter where there, there is a humility required um, that you don't know everything. Other people know things. You need to listen. You know, he talks a lot about listening. Um, and if, you know, again, if there's one thing I've seen over and over again in the church is that people are yearning to be heard and they want someone to listen to them. And I think he talks really well about that too. So I just, I find it hard to believe this is going to turn a powerful person into a despot. <laughs> I think they'd have to be already that. Ah, interesting. And there you have a responsibility if they do have power. Right. 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 Um, a number of the questions that have come in have sort of, uh, have sort of dealt with the notion of Christ as the truth. And actually three of the questions that I've read sort of deal with sort of Christ as the truth. Um, and, and, and if you don't know Christ, how then can you really talk about the truth? Um, and Jordan Peterson talks about truth um, as opposed to falsehood and, and lies in those kind of ethical senses. Um, it does, do we need, you know, I mean, I think you've already kind of answered this, but because it's being asked again, clearly people want to know. Um, it, if you know the truth, um, and it's the truth that sets you free, and the truth is Christ, um, is that therefore important when we analyze him? And does that then place what he has written some in a, in a somewhat more relative place with regards um, to kind of the authority it has over us? Well, the question of truth, as you said, he uses it generally as a synonym mm. for honesty. Mm. Um, he never... It is a question, though, what Christians mean and what they 
hear when they hear Jesus say, I am the truth, mm-hmm. um, the way, the life, and so on. What does that mean? Is it, do, do we think that means he tells us the truth? Certainly it means some of that. But to say he is the truth changes, it means he's reality or something. So I, I made a note about that. You know, what is, the, what, is, what is the Christian sense of what truth means if it's not just honesty? And for me, one of it is it's a vision of God. It's seeing the truth is seeing for us, anyway, relatively subjective, seeing who God really is. It's a vision of God. And, you know, we don't know who we're going to be, but we know uh, we'll be like him when we see him because we will finally see him as he truly is in, in First John. So seeing God has always been the central thing for a way Christians have talked about what the truth is. He's not after that. He's not, as, as Charles Taylor, the philosopher, says in talking about secularism, this is the imminent frame. He's talking about this world and our navigating of this world. He's not talking about where this world is placed. Hmm. So there, there isn't, uh, there, to that sense, it's relative. You use that term relative. Hmm. Everything he's talking about is, is relative to something beyond right. uh, or where we would place everything that happens to us, birth and death and so on and so forth. And that truth, which is reality in that, he calls reality being or something, which mm. is interesting. Mm. What does he mean by that? But in any case, he doesn't mean seeing God. Mm. And, um, but that doesn't mean that what he says is not true in the sense of actually describing how things work. And that's what he wants to see, to talk about. Mm. How do things work? Mm. And I think in many ways, psychologically, he speaks fairly accurately about that. One of the, the notes is a thank you to us. So whoever said this and wrote this, thank you very much. Um, and uh, they said, they talk about, um, Dr. Peterson speaks of needing to get people out of one's life who they would not recommend um, <laughs> friends having in their lives, right? Yeah. Okay. Within this in mind, do you have any thoughts on reconciling Dr. Peterson's therapeutic approach in this regard vis-a-vis the Logos of the Bible or how best to remain loyal to dear, old, perhaps wayward friends in a Christ-centered way without getting enmeshed? in the spiritual pitfalls the book is understandably wary of. So this is a sort of about friendship, and it's yeah. about, you know, I, I, I thought that was interesting. Someone's really clearly put a finger on something here. Any thoughts? Well, in the book, uh, Peterson, in that section, he talks about, um, you know, the, the friend who's behaving poorly will be the one to, will drag the person down, as opposed to the friend who is behaving well, lifting the person up, typically, which is exactly the illustration given to my kids at Christian camp. (laughs) That's what the counselors warn them about, you know. (laughs) Your friend who is drinking and doing drugs is going to convince you before you convince them, 
kind of. So I kind of chuckled when I read that. I thought, oh, that's uh, that's funny. Um, but at the same time, I thought after I read that chapter, I'm not sure that that's like how I view being a Christ follower, that I think I'm supposed to not be selecting my friends on that basis. Uh, and it also reminded me of Joel Osteen. Oh, here you go. Who actually <laughs> says that too. And I don't want you to think I'm a follower, but I, I that did cross my computer screen. To surround yourself with people who are moving in the same direction, you know? Mm. So, I mean, again, I think it's like psychology. I, like on one level, it makes perfect sense that you become like the people you hang out with and, and make good choices. We tell our kids that. We worry about their peer group when they become teenagers for a reason, because that's a true thing. Uh, so now I've completely forgotten what the question was. But No, um, it's, about, <laughs> it, 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 it's about the company you keep and what yeah. you do with wayward friends and, and, you know, and, and what responsibility do we have as right. a person of faith to, let's say, a wayward friend. Well, I love my wayward friends. And I, if they live near me, I have them for dinner. And I, I completely, you know, understand. <laughs> like, I'm 53. I have a lot of friends who have left the church who I never would have thought that they would have left. I never would have guessed. And they have. And so I just try to listen to them and love them. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. And then invite them back when that feels real and honest and appropriate. Yeah, it's not always clear in the book who he's talking to. Mm -hmm. But in general, I think he's talking, if you from a from a Christian perspective, to immature people, personalities, souls, what have you. And these are people who are broken, who are trying to heal. And so he's not talking to people who have it together. Not that any of us do, but but in in the spectrum of clinical treatment, there there is a spectrum. Mm. Some people are worse shape than other people. And he seems to be talking, therefore, to people who are worse shape or to younger people and so on when he says things like that. But the question is on Mark, because I mean, yes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump negatively, Paul says. On the other hand, the kingdom of heaven is like this little bit of yeast that you put in mm. and you leaven the whole lump with good, with, with love, with truth, with, uh, and so on. And Jesus left 99 sheep to go after the one that was lost. And so I mean, there's plenty in the gospels about not just not avoiding uh, the, 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 the delinquent, but actually, going after the delinquent. He, he, look at him. He spends all his time with wine bibbers exactly. and so on. Yeah. So, um, but part of that is, and I think Peterson is right here, you have to know who you are. There's where this honesty and self-awareness comes in. Am I ready for the kinds of, and Jesus asked that, you count the cost when you follow him. We think we're following him and we can be dragged down just as he says. I mean, by other things, obviously, because we're working with people or living with people who, who, who are problematic in one way or the other. But, but we have to be ready. We have to be mature enough to know what we're doing. So I think there's something there. there he, he's not right in the big picture. The big picture says you go after them. You, you, you give yourself to that which is 
would love to, with that which crucifies you for heaven's sakes. That's what the gospel is. Ultimately, that's what God has done. Um, but on the other hand, you only do that if you're really ready and willing to do that. This is not a, this is not a kind of a little experiment. Um, so, and he shows us that. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a very good point on which, on which to conclude. Um, there are a variety of questions around a number of things, and uh, the time constraints are such that we can't deal with all of them, uh, but we'll keep them and we will look at them. And if we think this may be a response that, uh, that uh, is needed to it, we'll uh, try and uh, find a way of conveying it, even though, of course, you didn't put your names on it. Uh, but um, I want to take this opportunity uh, of thanking two absolutely phenomenal guests and beyond my expectations and I'm sure beyond Laurie's and to Karen and Ephraim, you've just been an absolute, absolute lens through which to look at this fascinating book and uh, I'm all the richer for it. I hope you're all the richer for it and would you please uh, convey our gratitude to both of them for a wonderful <laughs> Before we go, though, and recognizing where we are, um, I would like to close us with prayer. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, you give to us many things, things that are both large and small, through which we can see you. You plant a seed, and the seed grows. We know not where it flourishes, but that that very seed can help us look at you in a new light, in a new way, and can point to your word. And we thank you that tonight, through our discussion of this book, a seed is planted. Ideas that are worthy of contemplation are promoted. We have been given something rich on which to dwell. But we know that you are the sower of the ultimate seed, that it is your word that is our light and our hope. And without that word, we cannot see the glory and the majesty and the wonder of you, our living God. And so may, through our contemplations, through our reflections on your word, we move closer to you. And in so doing, reach out to a world that Jordan sees as broken, in need of redemption and healing a place where responsibility and courage and truth are needed. But in reaching that world, may we do that in and through the one who came to us in both glory and in suffering, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.